everyone. My name is Kate, and welcome to tonight's event, The End of the End of History with Afabunga and Damage Magazine. Um, my name is Kate. I am the editorial coordinator for 1804 Books. It's the small bookstore you passed on your way in. Um, we're a community bookstore dedicated to giving socialist literature and revolutionary theory to anyone who's curious enough to ask those good questions. Um, we're here at the People's Forum, which is a community space and movement incubator. We offer a lot of classes, um, art workshops, dance workshops, screenings every Thursday. So if you're town, in town, make sure to come by, um, and even if you're not, in town you're watching virtually we have a lot of stuff um hybrid so without further ado i'll pass it over to christy to give a more robust introduction thanks so much everyone thanks so much kate uh round of applause to people's forum thank you for hosting good evening uh it is my honor to moderate tonight's debate with adam twos and alex hokili and to celebrate the release, uh, some months delayed, of The End of the End of History, a book co-authored by Alex along with uh, George Hoare and Philip Kunliff. My name is Christy Offenbacher. I'm a psychoanalyst and a political organizer, as well as an editor at Damage Magazine, which is co-hosting tonight's event with Alpha Bunga Bunga. Um, if you're not familiar with it, Damage is an online political economic gossip magazine, basically. Um, we tend to publish pieces from a Marxist or psychoanalytic perspective, um, but at the end of the day, we're a gossip magazine. Um, you can check out, Alex has a couple of great uh, articles there. We hope Adam will soon, too. Um, if uh, you look us up, you can find us at Damage Magazine, searching on social media pretty easily. Um, so now here with us tonight, we have um, Adam Tews on my left, who's a professor of history at Columbia University, as well as director of the European Institute. Um, he's also the author of a number of great, important books, um, The Wages of Destruction on the Economic History of Nazi Germany, Deluge about the First World War and the rise of the US, Crashed on the 2008 Global Financial Crisis and its aftermath, and Shutdown, uh, which is in some sense a, an extension, I think, of, of Crashed. Um, it is a political and social history of the 2020 pandemic, which I think situates it very helpfully uh, within the context of the ongoing failures of the global economic system. Um, and if you're like me and you kind of listen to this run of, of themes um, of his books, you hear that this is a, a historian, someone who's interested in the past, but I think very much um, one committed to the task of making sense of uh, what is unfolding in the present uh, with an eye to an interest in our possible future. And then similarly here on my right, we have Alex Hokili, who is a translator and journalist based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He sits on the editorial board of Damage and is a regular contributor to Jacobin Magazine. And of course, along with George Hoare and uh, Philip Kunliff, he is a co-host of BungaCast, formerly known as Alpha Bunga Bunga, uh, a global politics podcast at the end of, uh, the end of history. Um, and he co-authored the book, uh, which we are here tonight to discuss, The End of the End of History. I should probably mention, as I'm saying, a global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, uh, that after listening to Alex and the Bunga crew conduct a number of interviews over the years, um, and maybe also as I'm a psychoanalyst, it is my special pleasure to uh, see Alex in the hot seat, as it were, tonight. Um, so I hope you all will join me in uh, uh, hitting him with the hard questions in the Q&A after. Uh, but first, uh, by way of a brief introduction to this book, in the broadest terms, because I think Alex will get into this more 
Uh, this is a book which brings together the background framework, the Hegelian Fukuyamian framework, which has, I think, driven the podcast from its inception. It brings that together with formulations that have been elaborated and fine-tuned over the years uh, through back and forth with a wide range of excellent guests on the podcast. And then it applies these conceptual tools and framework to unfolding problems and phenomena in the world today while also raising the question of implications, what these analyses might mean for the prospect of a reinvigorated politics that could actually improve the conditions of human freedom and well-being. Uh, so I'm genuinely looking forward to tonight's debate, which will put into conversation these two very capable and thoughtful thinkers, both of whom are, I think, deeply involved in the task of writing and thinking and using a history of the present, an urgent task with high stakes for the political formations that could come to form in its wake. With that, uh, I'll hand it over to Alex to get us started. He'll, uh, we'll have a bit of back and forth after that, and then we'll open it up to the audience for questions. All right, hello everyone. Uh, it's lovely to see you all uh, actually in person in the same room for an event, which is uh, definitely a novelty. I think Adam was commenting on the same, so it's actually really nice uh, to be here, and thank you to Christy for that lovely introduction, though now I feel like she's analyzing me, and uh, it's made me a bit self-conscious. Um, and thank you. Just I don't should, bring in a, up any dreams. <laughs> yeah. That's my recommendation. Um, thank you also to uh, the team here at the People's Forum for hosting us in this wonderful venue. Uh, very appreciative. Um, and I was really glad that we could make it happen here. Um, so one thing actually about an event like this is not only could I not imagine this happening, you know, a year or two ago, obviously, for obvious reasons, but definitely couldn't imagine something like this happening 15 years ago, because if someone had invited me along to an event about the return of politics or something like that 15 years ago, I probably would have laughed at them. Or maybe I would have gone along out of curiosity uh, and concluded that, no, they're getting high on their own supply and trying to bring politics back by sheer force of will or exhortation, um, and that politics, no, is not coming back. I'm thinking, what is 15 years ago? It's 2007, right? Yeah, no, I think I picked the right year. Um, those were pretty glum times if you were interested in politics, uh, if you were coming of age, um, or if you were already of age at that time. That sense of glumness is actually something that Fukuyama was repeatedly misinterpreted for, or rather it's, a, it's an element which people didn't really realize, certainly if they hadn't actually read him, read the, the um, essay on the end of history or the book that followed in 1989 and 1992. Fukuyama's point, of course, was that there would still be events, there would still be things, even though liberal democracy would be the final form of human government, and that there would be no, uh, there would be an anti-ideological contestation, mankind had finished its ideological evolution, that despite all this, there would still be events and that the world wouldn't immediately come to look like the US or like Denmark, which actually was a little bit closer to Fukuyama's ideal vision of, of what a society would look like. So you might have coups, you might have disasters, all sorts of different events happening, but it didn't really mean history with a capital H, where there was genuine contestation over the future. This meant that Fukuyama, rather than being triumphal, and this was despite his own side having won the Cold War, he was actually kind of glum. It was kind of a gloomy sense of what would follow after the end of ideological contestation. And the reason for that, I think, this is maybe more reading between the lines and uh, directly citing from Fukuyama, is that those competing, competing visions of modernity between communism and capitalism gave optimism for the future because they were ideologies rooted ultimately in the Enlightenment which promised freedom, even if both state socialism and really existing capitalism failed to deliver on those promises. Instead what you got, and this is, Fukuyama was more explicit on this point, 
you got consumerism and nihilism. And when we think of consumerism, firstly, you can think of shopping, buying shit, right? But it extends far beyond that. It's also about the consumption of new identities, being able to pursue the exploration of the self through the market or the marketplace of ideas. And that's one aspect of consumerism. There was also another aspect which was politically debating what to buy and what not to buy, ethical consumerism. And so in this period of the end of history, what took the place of politics and public commitments was ethics and ethical questions about how to live your life, questions of lifestyle. There was also nihilism, and that goes beyond just, whatever, drug overdoses and school shootings, um, and perhaps got its clearest expression in something like political Islam, and especially a lot of the terrorist acts committed in Islamism's name. That, despite seeming like a new ideology which had come to challenge the West and triumphal liberal democracy, as the purveyors of the war on terror tried to convince us all, it didn't actually have a genuine project for managing human affairs and improving human society. It wasn't a, an ideology that promised freedom or prosperity, in fact, rather the opposite. And that's when it promised anything at all. I think really looking back you know, at the period I mentioned 2007, that was still pretty peak war on terror times. Uh, that was a time in which the terrorism perpetrated, I think, was in some ways more often than not a exteriorization of self-loathing or in, the, or in a better, more uh, in, uh, generous interpretation, maybe it was just a, a, a desperate yelp against modernity. But you know, ultimately, I think it's something that would be better understood as horrorism rather than terrorism because of the real absence of political content that was behind it. So anyway, nihilism and consumerism. One other form, actually, and probably the trendy idea on the left at the time was environmentalism, which itself was centered around consumption, often negatively, right? It was about telling the masses to consume less. And in its worst guises, was nihilistic too, insofar as it held to Malthusian ideas in which humans are nothing more than a burden on the planet. So in some ways, environmentalism, despite promising perhaps to a third way between capitalism and communism, it actually uh, itself really was just a unification of uh, consumerism and nihilism at the end of the end of, or rather at the end of history. So anyway, coming of age at that time, and this I speak for my absent guests, absent guests, absent uh, co-hosts and co-authors today, Phil and George, um, that for us, at least like older millennials, coming of age at that time, being interested in politics generally made you be some sort of weirdo or maybe an aspiring mainstream politico, which, made you, which meant that you were definitely even weirder. Um, <laughs> so this was also a time, like, it just indulge me for a second while I uh, reminisce really fondly about how terrible the end of history was. <laughs> um, there was a lot of post words, right? There's post-structuralism, post-modernism, all this. The important words that we bring in this book, um, which are not our own, but we've uh, adopted and used because we think they're important, is post-democracy and post-politics. Uh, post-democracy, first of all, is the idea that we still live formally in a democracy. There's still elections, free elections, there's parties, there's open contestation, but the content has completely evaporated. And all the other stuff that goes along with democracy, actual contestation in a day-to-day -day level, trade unions fighting for higher wages, civic associations making demands, and so on, all that stuff had really broken down. 
post-politics, and this is another important term that we use, and it can be a bit clunky and kind of political science-y, but ultimately we decided that it was important to um, use this term and, and, and like hinge a lot of the argument on it, made a probably even stronger argument about politics, right? That not only is democracy kind of sliding away and we're moving to this new hybrid form, but politics itself is somehow being ushered away. We weren't living in pre-political times. It's not like pre-French Revolution, but it's post-politics. There was politics before, but now what is happening is that, to put it simply, elites were undertaking a, a project, a strategy of depoliticization, of removing key areas of social and political life from public contestation. The people were going to be absent. They were meant to leave the stage, and things were going to be left to technical bodies or central banks or whatever. So this is the world where basically the people are missing, and politics happens at, exclusively at an elite level, increasingly behind closed doors. And there's all sorts of new techniques that emerge to make sure that politics happens uh, without people's input. Along with that, and this, you know, the, the, the form that that took is basically managerial technocracy. That's what ruled the world in the 90s and 2000s, and indeed even the 2010s. And socially what happened was hypermediatization. I'll come back to that because I think that element explains a little bit about why politics today, now that it's returned, is so weird and really effectively hysterical. Um, but while I'm talking about the media, I think I should make reference to uh, real, really the avatar of the end of history, the man who best encapsulates all these trends. And it was someone who's a media mogul and a real estate mogul. So already that gives you some idea. It's media and finance. That already gives you a good idea of um, the key elements of this new economy. This was a man who stood for new dynamism against the old decrepit politics, the old politics of smoky rooms and protests of the left, or the old immobile, semi-pious religious conservatism of the right. This was a guy who tried to parlay his own business dynamism into politics. He said that his own business success his own sense of dynamism, his own sense of going out there and getting what he wanted could also be your success. You could have this too. And so while the other parties spoke about what you should do or what you must do, about civic obligations, about collectivities, he just simply said, you may. Go out there and do it. Enjoy yourself. Get what you want. Have some sexy parties along the way. Um, he also promised to replace the old corrupt politics. And he actually rose at a time when the old corrupt politics were uh, fading away. But of course, he's fantastically corrupt as well. Uh, he was friends with all these old corrupt politicians. You can find the photos online. There's, uh, there's plenty of them. He's shaking hands and smiling uh, with these old uh, corrupt elites. His promise also to modernize, to do what the markets required, was combined with populist declarations, with rude jokes, and with rightist insinuations that ultimately scandalized the centrist establishment. So this was the age of Bunga Bunga, to put, uh, to put a name to it. And soon it would be the form of politics that would dominate the West as a whole, and actually many places beyond the West. So to fast forward to what the end of the end of history is about, because I've just been talking about something that isn't what the book is directly about. <laughs> um, but to move on to the end of the end of history, the global financial crisis actually didn't immediately bring back politics. It actually had delayed effects. It took until 2011 with Occupy in the Arab Spring, with the occupation of the squares in 2013, um, where suddenly it seemed like people were back on the stage, that people were making claims for themselves in their interests, and not making ethical demands on behalf of distant others, which is very important and makes 
a sh the shift that I spoke about in terms of moving from politics to ethics seemed to be moving back the other way, which is crucial. Now, okay, we know all the story, and I mean, maybe if you listen to the podcast, you'll know about the whole Brexit and Trump thing. That was kind of important. Um, that was the end of the end of history. And, but one important element to it in terms of the way that it tore away the rug from underneath claims to expertise and technocracy and the way that politicians would hide behind expertise is that while the global financial crisis tore away the authority of economists, 2016 then did the same for pundits and pollsters. So two of the key kind of professional categories of people who were held to know, who were supposed to know how things worked, what was going to happen and how to manage any problems that come up and provide solutions, now suddenly had no credibility whatsoever. So in this situation, politics seemed to be back. Um, but it wasn't now a contestation between different forms of politics, between left and right, or some other form of politics, but in, in, encapsulated into parties or some other organizations. Really what it ended up being is a contest between those who wanted to defend neoliberal technocracy at any cost, that is to say, to defend post-politics, against those who wanted to denounce the political system as a whole what we call anti-politics. And again, this seems like a little bit of a kind of clunky political science-y phrasing of post-politics versus anti-politics. But the reason that we thought that was important is because it places the, the very question of politics at the center. So it's not just about what the content of politics is, but whether you have politics or not. And so all these different populist movements were ultimately politicizing because they were suggesting that society uh, is not governed by consensus, that the elites don't have all the answers, and that there are conflicting visions and interests in society. And that is incipiently politicizing whatever we may think about these varied, often incoherent populist movements that have spread all over the globe. So at the end of the end of history, you basically have the key features of the end of history crumbling away or f falling away entirely. Post-politics already has no legs. You can't really claim that society should be governed by consensus. Uh, only really a, a sort of liberal mainstream minority genuinely believes that. Neoliberalism also, similarly, can't promise growth, can't promise economic dynamism, and can't really rely on arguments about meritocracy anymore. I don't think that people generally find that credible. The forward march of globalization has been halted. I don't know how much it has been pulled back, but at any rate, the forward march, I think, has been halted. And the ideology that accompanied it, globalism, has also been largely defeated, and it's best expressed by, I think, Tony Blair's uh, conceptualization, which was basically that globalization is a force of nature, it's a, natural, it's, a, it's a natural force, and politicians can only adapt their societies to that change, rather than in any way actively seek to um, take charge of society and drive change in, in a deliberate direction. So that's fallen away. But what remains of the end of history, and this is why we're at the end of the end of history and not the start of history, is that what Mark Fisher called capital, capitalist realism is still very much with us. Not only that there is no alternative, but that we don't really believe that there is an alternative. And this isn't just a problem in my head or your head, or maybe you think you have an alternative, but you know, I, I obviously am not pretending to come here with, a, with an obvious alternative. But the issue is that the, the vehicles for actually driving forward that alternative don't exist today. A couple of more notes really quickly. There was a pandemic, I think you might have heard about it, and that brought the experts back, and it kind of put a freeze on this populist moment. 
Suddenly, everything was subsumed under the health agenda. That meant that other political demands were pushed to the wayside. Public meetings were banned. States of emergency were introduced. It was all pretty convenient, we have to say, for the ruling class, whose, uh, whose pillars of their rule had been shaken over the past decade, really, by various populist movements. Now, I don't want to say it's like a pandemic. That's not what I'm saying. Um, the, and the main reason for that is I just think the ruling class is far too incompetent, incoherent, and incohesive to actually pull off any sort of coordination necessary for, uh, to affect one of these big conspiracies. But um, it did end up pretty convenient, and I think there's a certain learning there that actually, hey, this is good. Like, the health is the only question now, and all these populists have shut up for a little while but just for a little while. Because I think what we should remember and we should bear in mind, and I've made this point on the podcast, so bear with me, um, is that we should remember what it was like at the end of 2019. Now, for many of you, I imagine, that for you signifies the impending defeat of Bernie. Maybe you didn't think it was just yet, but soon after it would be. Or in the UK, it very much was the defeat of Corbyn and various other left populist movements. And I think by, by, uh, by the beginning of 2020, certainly you could, and bef this is before the pandemic, you could very much pronounce the end, the defeat of these left populist movements. But well beyond that, there was a whole set, set of populist uprisings, protests, movements, and so on in Hong Kong, Chile, Iraq, Lebanon, Bolivia, France, Catalonia. So the authority of elites and the legitimacy of supposedly democratic regimes and less democratic regimes around the world was genuinely shaken. And for that reason, I think there's no going back. There's no return to the end of history. The brief technocracy that we saw installed over the pandemic is nothing but an end of life rally. It'll fade away and there'll be no managerial restoration. And there's two reasons for this, the reason that politics will return. And the first one is the overreach in the pandemic. Although majority supported a lot of the anti-COVID measures, the reality is that I think people are very frustrated, to say the least, if not entirely disbelieving of what elites have, elites have said because of their doublespeak, because of their moving of the goalposts, and because of the restrictions imposed on daily life. And the second reason is that the material basis for sustaining the sort of end of history politics is no longer there. I mean, we have inflation, we have rising fuel prices, and elites' only response seems to be uh, asset price inflation. So ultimately, we're in a situation where politics seems to be back, but maybe, maybe too much politics, you know? Like, kind of, there's too much politics right now. It's kind of annoying. And, and you're thinking, well, yeah, that's kind of hypocritical because you're all about, like, politics coming back, right? And now you're complaining that it's too much politics. The reason for this is, I think, this sort of, what some people have called hyperpolitics, is that politics returned, but it, the vehicles for politics that were traditionally there, parties, movements, organizations, effectively great masses of people organized in big organizations, is no longer there. So that content has had to fill another form. And the form that pre-existed the return of politics was effectively hypermedia. And so that gives politics today its hysterical quality, that politics is reinfused, but the only vehicle for it is effectively hypermedia. And that's why we get these hysterical culture wars that drive us all crazy, and yet we can't help but engage in them. So while the end of history is over, we're very much stuck in the end of the end of history. And that's in part because politicians are able to absorb populist energy that end up perpetuating neoliberal rule by, while taking on populist clothes. This ultimately is techno-populism, which was the very sort of idea that was pioneered by, very much by our evil patron saint, Silvio Berlusconi, 30 years ago. 
So just a, a final kind of biographical note. Phil, George, and I started the podcast in 2017 because we sensed that things were coming loose. We were already very conscious at the time that this was perhaps at the end of the end of history, and we were fans of Berlusconi because we saw him very much as a guy who embodied the end of history, but also the transition to the end of the end of history. And so we set out to map the contours on the podcast, inviting guests and talking about these things, and the book is an attempt to synthesize that. It doesn't provide any real solutions, and I have to be honest about that, but at least what we tried to do was provide a little bit of political clarity and also about a little bit of self-consciousness, at least for the left, so that we understand how we understand the world, what we're doing and what we might be doing wrong, so that we might get beyond the world of Bunga Bunga, even if the sexy parties can stay, if you want. Great. Thanks, Alex. Adam? Okay, I think uh, I think you can hear me now. <laughs> well, it's a uh, it's a real delight to be here. Um, uh, as Alex said, it's uh, it's wonderful to be able to actually be part of a live event for the first time in two years. And uh, it's a particular pleasure for me to be uh, at this event because I'm I'm probably unusual in that I I have a small dog called Ruby the Heart Stealer, and um, reading Perry Anderson's critique of Francis Fukuyama's book changed my life. And I may be the single person to fit in that particular subset. Um, because what that Marxism on reading of Fukuyama's text did for me was to reopen the question of the philosophy of history and it's stayed open ever since for me. And so I was just absolutely delighted to see this book announced. I immediately pre-ordered it. <laughs> Uh, without having actually listened to your podcast, because the premise just struck me as perfect, and the cover was a sales pitch enough, um, because you were clearly right, and uh, I wanted in on that on that on that analysis. Um, so it's a it's really a delight to be here, and and what hooks me about this book, being of a very different generation from you, living this trajectory that you've described about from a different biographical angle, is actually the sort of philosophical or the, the philosophy of history that your take embodies. Because you read Fukuyama and Fukuyama's Hegel by way of Kojave against the grain. Because in a sense, I take your book to be saying that in fact, if you understand Hegel properly, Hegel was really trying to theorize defeat, not triumph. And the thing that Hegel was rescuing from that defeat was the premise that really all modern politics and every political institution of modernity worthy of the name had to embody and contain the principle of freedom. And the principle of freedom is insatiable. And so on the one hand, as it were, you can hypothesize a moment of closure at which history stops. But the inherent logic, in fact, of modernity is that such moments are always unstable and break. And I take your book to be a fascinating effort, A, to formulate that principle, which is to read Fukuyama and, and Kojave, I would submit, against the grain, because they, in fact, have a rather flat notion of a finality to which we are then condemned, which you are refusing to illustrate on the ground rather than the little vapid comments that and frankly orientalizing comments that Kojave makes, for instance, about stylistics in Japan, by way of a rich sociocultural account of what living through this moment actually means for your generation. And then most ambitiously and most promisingly of all, as it were, sketching what forces might break this impasse, or at least gesturing to them, 
and that's really where I kind of want to engage you um, most directly in a, in a conversation because that seems to me to be the bold project that you're undertaking here. Your, your presentation just now seemed to be rather more pessimistic than I take the critical passages in the text to be, right? I mean, there's these wonderful lines about Hegel's real insight is that no order founded on human freedom can be ossified. All ends of history end. All ends of history end. So this is, in fact, a sort of cyclical view of the way in which history closes, because in a sense, history for you is identified with real politics, fundamental politics. Fundamental politics, insofar as it is premised on a theory of the good or the political, in a sense, wills its own end, because once you've achieved the order that you desire, you've reached it, and then you become some sort, you're in some sort of static equilibrium, but it must always be inadequate. That, I think, is, for me, the kernel takeaway and the real novelty of the analysis. And then, as it were, the, the fun, the amusement of the book lies in the illustration of this across a wide variety of terrains. And I know those are some of the stakes that really that you're deeply engaged in. So let me, let me make a series of points ab about that. The first is that I love, you know, one of the, one of the themes of the Fukuyamian moment is that, right, that time gives way to space. Right, that, that, that we move from a regime dominated by the grand promises of history with a capital H to a set of questions about where history has ended, in other words, spatial questions. And you engage very directly with that challenge and offer us new answers. And as you say, right, I mean, it was really an idiot non-reading of Fukuyama to ever imagine that he was celebrating the United States. I mean, this is just, this is just silly. You have to not read him to think that. Um, it's clear that he was thinking either about the bomb West German Republic or Denmark as where space ends, and, and he's, quite, he's quite clear about this. But what you say is, well, no, that's far too simple, right? That's not what this is going to look like. It's going to look like some hybrid of Brazil or Italy. And, I, and I've, you know, you and I have gone back and forth on this already online. I like this uh, very much, but it seems to me to again posit a too conclusive end and a too uniform end. My, my preference would be for a kind of combined and uneven account of the meltdown of conventional categories, um, in which, frankly, if you manage to attain either Italy or Brazilian state, you're doing pretty well, um, especially after the Trump experience. Who wouldn't take Berlusconi? And for large parts of the developing world, Brazil is an ideal. Um, and, but I take your book to be an incredibly productive shift of perspective which would open us up precisely to an account of how this uneven and combined ending of a conventional frame happens. This is a conceptual book, as I've said. It's a historical geographical work in a sense. It's also clearly a highly political book. And it, it comes as no surprise, of course, that we part ways in terms of politics. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's worth saying that, that your account of the professional managerial class and its sort of involuted politics in the current moment is incredibly cutting and I think devastatingly effective. Um, and I, and I, I would really I commend the book in those terms. I mean, the bit that for me really struck home because of my line of work as a historian, as a public intellectual, is your takedown of liberal anti-fascism. Um, and unsurprisingly, perhaps, given the places where I've worked, historically, you will, you will appreciate the particular piquancy of this. Having spent some time at Yale, I'll say no more. Um, but, um, but exposing the way for liberals, anti-fascism isn't so much an anti-fascism as just a plain addiction to fascism as their desired other, right? I mean, you're un in unable to get away from Reichstag fire moments, always going back to regurgitate and consume their own 
vomit, you might say. Um, so I find that take hits very close to home, and, and, and perhaps not surprisingly, because this is in a sense a kind of auto-sociology. It's a sociology of our own position, or at least many of your readers' position. What I have to say I find less compelling, and where I really want more, more clarification, productive, and nevertheless, it was productive for me, this gap, is when you speak about the other of the PMC. Because in this book, I take to be a kind of internal critique of a generation of the PMC. And there is a kind of saving other that you postulate on the outside. I mean, it's also a very un-Hegelian book in, in your takedown of the PMC, because obviously for Hegel, these, we would be the universal class, and all would we well. And that obviously is not what you're looking for to deliver us from paralysis, to restart history, to get the cycle going again, is something that comes from the outside. And what that is, is the working class, or as you repeatedly describe them, the masses. And that really, that phrase, the masses, really sort of set me off. Um, because when we talk about the working class, I have a sense that I know what we're talking about. Right? This is a field of which there is a rich sociology, there is a rich conceptualization of how to understand the working class, there is a rich empirics of what the modern working class looks like. But it seems to me that the concept of the masses, well, it almost struck me as provocatively anachronistic. Like, what exactly do we mean when we speak in those terms at this moment? It's certainly flattening, deliberately flattening, in a way that a class category isn't. And, and frankly, it's also counterfactual in the sense that when you do sophisticated sociology of the modern working class, what you find is not the masses as such. So this is perhaps a performative notion, in a sense, something to be brought into being, an, an idea that struck me when we were talking beforehand. But there's a bit of me to just tease you a little more that, that contrasting your fine-grained cultural analysis of the various cultural stands within the PMC with this other that is the working class masses, it couldn't help feeling that it couldn't help feeling that you were sort of waiting for a sort of alien savior to come and rescue us from this impasse on the inside. This may be my particular reading shaped by my own biography. In fact, you could go even further, it seems to me, and ask whether the, this language reflects the world which you so critically and fantastically clearly analyze in which the working class is an object and not the actual subject of politics. And what we're somehow waiting for is some magical moment in which that object takes on life, raises itself to the stage of the actor of history again, and resumes its redemptive work. Why does talk of the masses seem so anachronistic? Well, I've already, as it were, hinted at one dimension of this, which is that, which is, you know, the very familiar story of socioeconomic change. Um, it's in the logic, I think, of our current situation that the really actually existing working class in most advanced economies anyway is characterized by differentiation in terms of race, gender, age, by dispersed locations, dramatically separated functions attempts to constitute a mass working class subject face enormous challenges in the current moment. What I really like about your book is that you engage also in a historical intervention at this level where you refuse to romanticize the glory days of social democracy and you insist that that was in its own right a kind of closure of history. And I think this is a very powerful exemplification of your idea of the closure of history as a cyclical thing, right? Within the space of three quarters of a century, we've been through two cycles, one of which was social democratic. But however masculinist, 
the white trade union organizations of the classic mid-century moment may have been. At least they did constitute the working class as a political subject. And economics has shifted that. What other factors have? Well, you mentioned consumerism, and, and I think you give a very rich account of consumerism in a full form. <laughs> but in my, my last question is really about the role of the state, the role of the state um, in this process of the dismantling reconstitution of this saving historical subject. What does, why does the state matter? Well, on the one hand, because of the welfare state and the various ways in which we can think of the state as a field of class relations, a kind of Althusserian point. Um, and as you very rightly point out, this is the classic arena of PMC, ideological, the, the ethical politics of the PMC is played out in those kind of public spaces, and you have very cutting things to say about that. But it's not just the welfare state, it seems to me, that is critical here. And on today, this evening, it seems to me we also need to talk about a different dimension of the state and um, its relevance to this question of history and politics. I think besides the welfare state, we also need to talk about the warfare state. And for me, that's crucial, not just because it's current salience, but because thinking of that and thinking about how one might concretize this notion of the mass it struck me that the way in which you in the book define politics is remarkably um, sharp and it's defined in relation essentially to the social order the domestic social order perhaps understood in global terms but nevertheless a series of I don't, I'm not accusing here of methodological nationalism, but with regard to class relations defined within a certain geographic sphere, which is clearly one dimension of what historically salient politics is. And one can claim that it's the most important, but it's hardly exhaustive. And it, it, you don't have to be Carl Schmitt, I think, to ask whether from the American or certainly the French revolutions forward, we can really define modern politics and thus history, the coupling that you absolutely correctly insist on without reference to war. Certainly Hegel didn't. Remember the famous encounter between Hegel and Napoleon is in Jena on the battlefield of Prussia's destruction, and that's what Hegel is celebrating, right? Marx and Engels did not in their writings about revolutionary war in the 1848-49 moment. Nor did fascists, because if the constant insistence on fascism in the current moment is absurd because it totally abstracts from the balance of class forces, it's also absurd because it totally abstracts from the matrix of total war, without which you can't sensibly think actual fascism. Right? I mean, fascism without total war is nothing. It's literally just dudes in outfits posturing. <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous in its own terms. It's very different if you're talking about the aftermath of World War I. And if class struggle is one of the definitions that frames all of this, right, then what are the relationships between class struggle and war historically? And I would say they're incredibly close. The mass working class politics of the 20th century, including trade union organization, were entwined, intertwined with the experience of not one but two total war mobilizations. One way of answering the question, what the masses are, in other words, the crispest, to me at least, is to point to ranks of uniform men and women. If not actually uniform, then at least ranks of men and women marching in lockstep as though they were in uniform. Right? The classic image of the revolutionary, uh, uh, say, of the Spanish uh, Civil War, 
whether to war on the one hand or, as Lenin hoped, to the civil war of class struggle. In either case, organized masses of men and women's bodies in rank and file. So if we take politics in this broader sense of conflict, you can see where I'm heading here, then the end of the end of history, it seems to me, takes on a different and rather more ominous aspect. Don't get me wrong, though. I'm not summoning a new boogeyman, right? Because the new boogeyman would not be fascism, but as European bureaucrats endlessly stress, without us, war breaks out between Germany and France tomorrow. And this is absurd, right? It's as much a blackmail as the fascism threat is. But what if instead, instead of Berlusconi on your front cover, you put, it would fit really nicely, the grinning face of Vladimir Putin this afternoon? Or for that matter, George Bush, right? Is what we are seeing in Ukraine, forgive the expression, something like a bunga war? Or, as the Americans put it, used to glibly call it a war of choice. Just something you did. A war of choice, not a war of necessity. And if so, if those are simply the wars of the post-political age or the anti-political age, perhaps, in Putin's case, does the real end of the end of history imply something else, namely something much more grave and historically consequential, the confrontation between China and some kind of American-led coalition? Is that when it really kicks off again? We want to have some time for questions and answers at the end, but uh, thank you, Adam. I feel like we should give uh, Alex a good chance to respond to this before we open it up to questions and answers. Or? Yeah, briefly, a couple of answers. And thank you, first of all, Adam, for being such a, a careful and enthusiastic reader of the book. I really appreciate the, the thoughtful questions. I think I just want to firstly respond on war. And I think when we talk about growing turbulence in the world and how that um, shakes out of uh, its torpor various structures that had become completely ossified during the end of history, no doubt war would potentially be one of them. And that also opens up spaces, of course, I think, as, as you recognize, uh, spaces for politics. The difference is, of course, is that we could probably say that, you know, if it does happen, if the U Ukraine war does happen, that it didn't really happen, right? That it still remains somewhat hyper-real. And the main reason for that is that the mass ranks of uh, men and now women uh, uniformed and with experience of active combat is no longer a reality for the, for the majority. And so the bringing the war home, which was such an important force for uh, communist revolutions, is no longer a, a reality in our days. And so that hyper-real aspect, that distance, makes it seem as if it could just as well not happen. It's literally the case that Russian law bans the use of conscripts in this conflict. Just think about that for a second. Yeah. Russian law, Putin's regime reorganized its reserve system so as to have troops it can legally deploy for this war. I mean, it's, it's just staggering. And, and that very much is the still a kind of testament to the end of mass society, I think, or, or one element of it. And that's... Uh, in a way, foreign adventurism is very much a facet of the end of history. Of course, humanitarian war, wars of choice, uh, are very much part of that whole system. And I guess that's a question whether, you know, international relations, more than the relations within domestic states, still 
kind of follows the end of history model more than it does the end of the end of history. Um, anyway, so that's a, that maybe something just to leave a question mark over. As to whether we're too national, I mean, I know you said you didn't accuse us of, of methodological nationalism, but I think that what, what is a key, another key factor, and this is very related to what I was just saying about humanitarian war, which is that the whole period of the end of history, the past 30 years, has seen the flight from the national sphere, from national politics, and the flight from the state as a terrain of struggle. And that is something that is not just elites who are jetting off to Dubai and putting their money elsewhere and so on, but is also very much something that is done uh, by the left-leaning PMC, right? That always imagining politics elsewhere, whether it's humanitarian concerns or trying to create international linkages because it's fundamentally a way of turning one's back on the working class. So I think it's not so much a, 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 that I need to want to re return to the nation state or that class relations are not somehow international and just purely contained within the nation state, but it's more remind a reminder of sense of place and that that is fundamentally important. And I think without some sense of place, it's very hard to imagine politics actually genuinely returning. And so just simply saying we are here, which is in some ways a very typical sort of right populist claim, we're still here, right? You can't forget about us. I think it does have a very powerful association with place, which can't just be dispensed with. Um, just a couple of other very quick points. I think as regards the, the professional managerial class, and of course, you know, you have to be a member of that class if, to, to know what PMC means generally. Or maybe the reverse is true. If you know what PMC means generally, <laughs> you're a member of the PMC. But um, nevertheless, we, we are where we are with that. Uh, I mean, we argue in the book that they're the last holders of the end of history flame, that their allegiance to the institutions widely discredited of media, the law, the judiciary, and so on, is something that they that the professional managerial class, and especially kind of it's the left liberal wing of that, uh, holds to very strongly. And part of the reason for that is that the PMC is unable to speak in its own interest. And I think it would be interesting if it did, and we're interested in a, be, and a, being able to. Now, what, to take a very contemporary example, which I think many people in the US will be familiar with, is professional class unionization, which has happened in tech sector and various other places. Now, all power to them, good for them, right? If, but it's interesting that in that process, very often the concern is a pursuit of quixotic cultural ideals and various kind of culture war topics around race or gender or whatever else, and very little about defending their own wages or working conditions. And that, that I think is very telling in terms of being unable to speak in your own interest. And I think you, it's not just about immediate interests either. I mean, for example, teachers uh, who are themselves professionals, but you know, would, would say part of the working class, but you know, teachers would defend the teaching profession and the importance of teaching. And they failed to do that during the lockdowns and, and, and failed to really defend in many places, keeping schools open. So it's not just about narrowly pursuing your own interests, so that's also the, you know, kind of central. It's also about defending your professional interests, or perhaps journalists, if journalists were also to, to walk out, right? Defending what journalism should be in the pursuit of truth. But that seems to be rather absent. Instead, it's just these quixotic causes. And I think that that is why I talk about, we talk about the working class, which is not some sort of exogenous element or a deus ex machina, um, albeit the lack of the, the, the kind of low levels of class consciousness today maybe make it do make it seem like a sort of deus ex machina. Um, but at least that's a reason why, from within the professional class, it's hard to see 
that sort of thing emerging because of the reluctance to speak in, in one's own interest. And to say, no, we're middle class and we want this. We want to defend our, our wages. You know, that, that would be fine. It's okay. And then you can contest that. Um, so finally, just on the point, because it, it follows on from this, you know, why the masses? And I agree that's sort of a flattening term. Um, but I guess the idea is to, to, in some sense, have a sort of empty signifier mm -hmm. because we don't want to prejudge what form that will take. The working class, of course, I mean, that it's still a central contradiction of modernity, whatever the way you want to sociologically, you know, color it. Oh, it's white men in hard hats or it's, you know, women in the service sector, whatever you, you want to do. And I, that's why we don't want to engage in the kind of sociological coloring in. Ultimately, the central contradiction is one between capital and labor. And that's why we refer to the working class, which is still there despite probably the lowest levels of class consciousness in, in, in 170 years, at least in, at least in the West. But that's where we are, and I think that would be still, nevertheless, the only thing that could really shake uh, society out of beyond the end of the end of history and into history proper. Well, thank you both. A round of applause for these, uh, this exchange so far. I want to now turn to our audience uh, and invite you to raise your hand. I'm going to take a few questions at a time and then allow Alex and Adam to respond. So I see one, two up here in the front, and three in the back. Uh, please stand up and speak as loudly as possible. Oh, you have microphones. Hello. Okay. Uh, thanks very much to both of you for uh, really uh, fascinating conversation. I want to push a little bit more on this uh, idea of class. Um, and um, your analysis, as uh, you uh, put it to us, um, I, I guess I'm 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 curious whether uh, to what extent uh, it really is. Uh, I guess to say perhaps a little provocatively, it is a social analysis, as as I think you described it. Uh, in these concepts, you know, the end of history, post politics, um, anti politics. Um, you know, should we say that these things are are happening, or you know, a, a materialist perspective might say something more like, well, these are these are sort of phenomena. These are sort of the the modality in which we experience politics on on Twitter or in conversations. Um, but there's uh, there's a particular balance of class forces uh, that's creating those phenomena, um, and. Um, could you, could you sort of say more about what you think that balance is? Of course, it, it, it differs country by country and, and within countries. But it seems to me that the reason that we feel as though politics has disappeared um, or is starting to cease to have disappeared is that for a period of time, uh, you know, to, to reduce things sort of massively, um, uh, you know, the people who have uh, things are getting more or less what they want. And if we read someone like Mike Davis, you know, we can see what happens when the people who have things don't get what they want. These Los Angeles homeowners who are certain, who, who, whose property values are suddenly threatened by the, the, the erection of new developments uh, or, or whose uh, sort of middle class uh, uh, sort of spending power is being threatened by, by rising property values and corresponding rising property taxes. What happens when that happens? There's there's an unbelievable political um, sort of, uh, um, uh, um, you know, there, there's suddenly politics exists again. You know, you have uh, these homeowners associations springing to life and we'll need lobbying to wrap it up with the a representatives. Question. Sorry. <laughs> sure. 
I'll wrap up. But but um, it seems as though we don't have politics because um, you know because uh, uh, sort of the dominant classes are in charge. Um, uh, so, um, so so do you agree with that? And and if so, um, uh, you know th then is is the working class you know enough of a sort of specific? I think you you you. Um, uh, Adam Tuz, you were you were saying something to this effect too. Um, is that a is that really a, a class actor anymore? If if there's no class consciousness. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That was a very good discussion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was a great discussion. Um, I have one question for you guys. Uh, it's on the character of warfare, and also brings it to a cyclical question is the way I see it, in some respects, we sort of return to 16th century warfare in which uh, proxy armies, a small, highly professionalized group of people who are capable of deploying violence in a bunch of places is now the primary actor. And that means not only just into interstate conflicts, which you see in, you know, place, and also like uh, civil wars like Syria, in terms of the official ones, you also see it in terms of the sort of Hobbesian, which is Hobbes is obviously writing in this point, uh, war against all in places where like basically the state capacity is completely broken down to provide a monopoly on violence, such as Mexico, Brazil, South Africa, in the sense that you're seeing without a mass society in terms of uh, conscription and in terms of mass deployment of troops, you're seeing a forms of privatized violence in various ways returning in a high degree of deployment and that sort of fits in between state and non-state actors in which I see uh, this direction going of what uh, a bungo war scenario looks like. <laughs> hey, thanks. Um, I guess I'm curious if you think that the rise of China economically as a, as a really serious force and one that seems to satiate a lot of the conditions that Fukuyama wrote about in terms of recognition and other aspects um, as, as a rising power um, without meeting those conditions of freedom represents uh, a real alternative in the sort of uh, Fisher sense. I mean, maybe not one that can be replicated, but one that's different. I mean, I think that you brought up Russia, but, but China really seems like it's, it's a much stronger power in that respect. Okay. Thank you. I don't know how to wrap up these three questions into a, a tidy bundle, but um, feel free to take whichever stand out to you. Okay. Um, the first one, um, I think, you know, what's remarkable about the period of the end of history or since, you know, the 19, since 1989, if you want, it's, a, it's the first time since the mid-19th century when you have capitalism without the workers' movement after the defeat of socialism. And that underpins our whole argument. So yeah, it's, it's a political book. It's not a book about class structure or about political economy in an explicit sense. So that's what underpins it. Now, politics was brought into being by the left, by the workers' movement, by that challenge. And it was done at a time when the working masses were not integrated into society. There was no universal franchise. And so if politics can be brought into being in those situation in that sort of scenario it certainly could can today when we do still nevertheless despite everything benefit from universal suffrage uh, freedom of speech and so on however threatened these things might be or uh, seem to be becoming 
I think the, Ben's point about uh, Bungo Moore, if I followed it correctly, I mean, I think what's remarkable, and maybe here I'm, I'm getting towards some of the uneven and combined end of history stuff, um, which I'll have to think about more and uh, at another point in time. But it, I, what's clear, I think, is a decline of state sovereignty, especially in the semi-periphery. And I think part of that story has to be the fact that these states and the elites who lead them have no need to formally integrate the mass of workers through formal employment anymore. And so the mass of precaritized people in, in, in uh, you know, unstable and uh, insecure uh, service sector employment creates the conditions for that sort of breakdown and that washing of hands uh, that the elites perform you know, for the responsibility for social outcomes. You know, this is the, what Christopher Lash spoke about as the revolt of the elites, um, more in reference to, uh, to the capitalist core, but I think it's much more evident in countries of the semi-periphery like the ones you mentioned. Um, maybe I'll start at the other end. I mean, it, it is worth, I, th I think your question is a very valid one and it's one that haunts me incessantly and um, this the question about China and how to place it and it's worth remarking after all that Kojave so as we know appears to be convinced that Stalinism was the end of history when when he gave his famous lectures on the phenomenology of spirit in Paris in the series of cycles in the 1930s the supposition is that that he saw Stalin as the right the, the man on horseback that was going to end as it were and provide the universal order so it will be entirely in keeping with this kind of mode of analysis to shift the locus from Fukuyama's supposition that it was the West, which required quite a lot of fancy footwork on his part. He had to hybridize it with modernization theory, presuppose a philosophical anthropology. One can strip all of that away and you could, I think, and presumably the Chinese regime itself is convinced by something along those lines. I mean, the, I think the project of dissecting 21st century Marxism, as they call it, is a is a worthwhile intellectual enterprise, quite an urgent one for the, for the, for the Western left, to my mind. Um, to, come to, to come to these two points, which I think of as being interconnected, because um, your, 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 your suggestion here, in a sense, involves a, you know, a primacy of class analysis. It provides the underlying forces against which everything else is epiphenomenal. And I would agree with you in domains like economic policy. So my reading, for instance, in shutdown of central, the freedom of autonomy of central banks, the fact that they have given up the constraints that used to constrain them, is a direct reflection, as Alex put it, that there's never been a moment of less constraint in terms of the balance of class forces. You can do wacky MMT-style shit without any fear that anyone in an organized labor movement will take charge of it and try to do something dangerous with it. So that really frees you up as a central banker. But my point about the, and this goes to your response to my point about war, is the question about war for me is does it reduce to the same logic of class relations, in which case it's really just a supplementary point and one could map the terrain of war onto your analysis and leave it at that. And my suggestion, I, mean, I think that would be a weaker version of my point and, I, and, and, and I'd be amenable to it and there are materialist readings of the history of war that would allow you to do that and I think, Ben, you're pointing in that kind of direction. But, but what if, in fact, if you do go back to Hobbes and you think of that as an alternative genesis point for the, the emergence of modern politics, not simply, as, as Alex will insist, modern politics is essentially class struggle and modern history is essentially class struggle, but what if, in fact, there's an alternative, a dualism, if you like, an ontology, a dualistic ontology fundamentally, a dualistic causal pattern in which war actually has an alternative logic. And one way you could center that would be, for instance, 
taking the crucial moment not to be the 1970s, which maps too closely onto the narrative of neoliberalism, but the invention of the hydrogen bomb. Does the invention of the hydrogen bomb not transform the logic of destruction? This was E.P. Thompson's supposition, right? That we needed a history of exterminism as a different type of logic. And one of the, one of the things that, that Eisenhower discovers about the H-bomb is precisely that with new look style deterrence, you could do away with all of the beastly social democratic implications of having to have a mass army. It's very expensive fiscally. It requires all sorts of complex bargains. If you can just have mutually assured destruction, you make war totally autonomous, if you like, to that extent of, of class logic. You float off into a different realm. And that is the realm, after all, that Russia and the United States continue to inhabit today. Great. Do we have three more? Okay. Wow, we're heavy on this side. Um, we'll take up in the front here and then there in the back. How's it going? Thank you. Um, I just want to ask about something you said at the beginning about globalization uh, and the sort of sense that globalization is slowing or fragmenting. And I'm curious, both of your take, is it possible to slow or fragment the globalized economy? Is it happening or is it sort of like defunding the police where everyone thinks it happened but it didn't really? Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I have a kind of personal question to ask. I'm involved in DSA work in southeastern Mass, which is very conservative for Massachusetts. And we are focusing our energies on assisting renters. And um, to make a long story short, we've been there for a year working every week, and we've gained no traction whatsoever, zero. And the reason why I mention all this is because Oh, when you talk about class configuration and all that kind of stuff, these people live in shit. They, they really do. Um, and they, they don't give a flying toss why we're there. Nobody asks why we're there. We don't proselytize. We don't do any organizing at all. Um, we just try to help them. We're basically filling in for a failed state. And most of my comrades are perfectly happy with that. We seem to be involved in this inverse performativity in which the, the, the greater the failure, um, the, the more resonant it is with the activists. And this actually, um, I take that idea from, from you, uh, Professor Tews, with your great LRB article on the politics of failure. That really struck home with me and it, it grieves me. And I, I just see, it, it seems to me like Leftist politics, that is our biggest, um, our biggest uh, obstacle right now is that objectively, and as much as you can use that word, we are failing on so many fronts and yet we keep invoking Gramsci and all the rest of it and the failure just becomes greater and greater and I'm just, I'm totally at a loss. I, I don't know what to do anymore. Thank you. Well. And uh, in back. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah, uh, so, uh, Alex, I actually wanted to like come back to something at the very beginning when you were talking about Berlusconi and um, 
like the nature of his promises to people because I think that's actually really key to a lot of um, questions that are sort of arising now. Um, like the idea that Berlusconi promised this uh, individualistic vision of like capitalism, but like a, it was populism, but it was like the freedom to pursue uh, your own advancement within capitalism. And why I think that's important now is because you know you, you have a lot of these um, in, intra left debates. Uh, regarding these like modern populist movements, uh, like right populist movements, like say you know like the January sixth storming of the Capitol or the uh, truck convoy that's going on in Canada now, right? And you have like some factions like within the left, uh, you know, denouncing that these are right wing fascists, they're racist, etc. And then other ones, well, like you know, they're they're against the elites, they're um, you know they're arti they're like crudely articulating something like working class. Uh, grievances, right? And we shouldn't be so quick to dismiss them, and, we, and like, either we should try to seek some common ground or whatever. And it, it seems to be this constant like back and forth, right? And uh, the because the socialist answer to that is like, well, they're not really working class; they're more like petty proprietors or petty bourgeoisie, and and it, which like is probably true, but it seems also most like too convenient. Um, and I th so I I wonder if you have any comments on that because I think actually your what you said about Berlusconi at the very beginning, it might be kind of a key to that, like instead of focusing on like who these people are and what the nature of them is, like what is the nature of the promise that is driving them? Um, I don't know if you have anything uh, about that. Thank you. I think I'm gonna start with that last one. I think Berlusconi's promise in the early days, I mean, the first time you know he ran and formed Forza Italia in the early 90s, the promise was one of individual freedom. It was the sort of triumphalism of you know, postmodern, post-Cold War capitalism of uh, you know, new media and entertainment offerings. You know, he's obviously the, the owner of AC Milan at the time as well, so you know, kind of part of the early stages of the globalization of football and uh, soccer. Um, and there, there was, I think, an important sense of giving up old duties, of a lack of sense of responsibility, of collective responsibilities, and that you could go and pursue. Uh, it was a very individualist and consumerist vision, right? Which also played, which might have played maybe for workers who had been, felt like their union wasn't really gaining them anything, and they could, um, you know, depart from that. It, Obviously, plays to small businessmen who, for whom, it have a naturally a self, uh, a sort of individualistic conception, and where the state would only act as a burden. How is that the same, or how is that different from something like the truckers' strike in in Canada? I think there's a good question there. One might say, or at least the critics might say, that that absence of sense of responsibility is what characterizes them too. Ah, they're not responsible for other people because they're just demanding. Uh, their freedom, but their freedom is nothing more than a special liberty, right? The ability to to do what you want, but it's not a, a, a liberty which is extended to others. I don't think that's at all, from what I know, from what I've seen, what is really at stake there. So I don't think that making that comparison is correct. Now, there's obviously this sort of left-wing attempt to Disassociate, disassociate from it because, oh, they're owner-operators, so they're not working class, a bit like you could say a plumber is not working class. And it's kind of farcical and anyway completely beside the point because ultimately what, needs, uh, what there needs to be is a political reading of what is at stake, of what the demands are, ra rather than just narrowly looking at the class composition. 
I mean, class composition is important when looking at a movement. And of course, if it was a bunch of billionaires in trucks, then that would obviously you know, color it in a very obvious way. But it's obviously a mixed group and pretty, you know, uh, of the masses to, 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 to kind of provoke uh, Adam here. But, you know, um, <laughs> and, and therefore it, it's a political question of what they're demanding. And I think the demand for freedom, however incoherent and um, mixed up the sort of basis of what they're doing is, I think the demand to repeal the vaccine mandates is a completely valid one and therefore should be supported. And if it, we find that they're sort of incoherent or a mixed bag or whatever, they should be engaged with and argued with and not recoiled from or denounced, right? I mean, <laughs> politics is ultimately about making arguments and arguing with people, not assuming a pre-made subject who is there perfectly formed. It's going to be confusing today. That is what politics is like at the end of the end of history. And so you have to go and make an argument. And I think, I mean, I'm not Canadian, so I can't, you know, be telling people to go. But, you know, if I were there, that's what I think I would be doing politically. Um, so on the, the issue of globalization, I'll take, I'll try and answer the, the other two. Um, Personally, I mean, I, the, you can see why people say this because if you look at certain indicators of globalization, it appears to have plateaued. Uh, it appeared to have plateaued really around 2013, something like that. Some of those indicators are quite sensitive to commodity prices. So as soon as those crash, global flows look like they contract. Broadly speaking, we think the hype around supply chains kind of ran its course by then. There'd been a huge shove. Hundreds of millions of Asian workers have been incorporated into the global division of labor. Those gains were exhausted. The Chinese labor market was beginning to run dry, that kind of a story. And then on top of that, you had the whole journalistic narrative of COVID and how this was going to disrupt everything and onshoring and a bunch of politicians got in on that action. And that, I think, has sustained it. I think we're not seeing any signs so far of any substantial revert going into reverse. Uh, and and uh, we are seeing it with regard to the movement of people. The fact that China, 1.4 billion people, is essentially cut off from the rest of the world is a rather dramatic development. But with regard to the flow of goods and money, not so much. And from a broader point of view, I think it, you know, it poses the question, a narrative that says we might be at the end of globalization poses a fundamental set of questions about the one part of the world that has yet not been incorporated into the global division on a huge scale, which is sub-Saharan Africa, which is the center of the most dramatic demographic development that we are continuing to witness in the current moment. And there is no serious projection of, you know, um, African demography that doesn't see Africa reaching about 2 billion people by the 2050s. And they are currently not incorporated into value chains. Um, and, and unlike the Asian story, which after all, in the broader scheme of history is really a return, it's not really a novelty, right? It's actually a return to the old order of things, with the center of the world economy being Asian. The emergence of Africa as the demographic dynamo of the late, 20th, late 21st century or the mid 21st century is radically novel. That's never happened before. And it's an effect of slow reductions in birth rates and very rapid reductions in child mortality. So it's a, a very dramatic open-ended story. And so that for me is the big question about the future. It's not any longer between Eurasia and the United States. That is the next move. To the, to the question from the gentleman here, which is frankly, overwhelming. Um, 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 I, I don't, I'm, I'm not somebody who is entitled to give you an answer to what you told us or the question that it implies. Um, I don't feel entitled to that. 
in any way. Um, I don't write from the position of the sort of on-the-ground activism that you devote yourself to and that you pay the price for. And so I think it would be entirely inappropriate for me to pontificate about that. Um, one thing I can say is that if you, you have the time and take the time to read stuff in the LRB by me and you find it at all inspiring in any way, don't hesitate to get in touch. Um, because uh, I'm very happy to talk about these kind of things and I'm very happy to find, it's very easy to find. And don't hesitate to reach out, email me by way of my website and if talking about the issues in a private way um, would be any kind of support, I'm more than available for that. I would think that one crucial issue, and I was thinking very much about what you said to me when we first met Christy at the beginning of this evening, you described yourself somebody as, I think, I think you'll forgive me for paraphrasing you, but it was along the lines of, you know, I'm going to organize till I die. Um, don't make that an immediate and acute trade-off. Right? I mean, that is a kind of passionate commitment, but it's one that's obviously sustained by certain inner emotional, psychological resources. And um, take care of yourself. Let's have at least one more round of questions, I think. Um, Okay, I think I see, okay, there's a, over here, and the way back, um, and then sort of middle here, and then in the corner there. Thanks. Um, I'd like to hear more about um, how you think warfare might have a completely separate logic from class warfare, because, I mean, if you look at at least the way it works in the United States, like you started out with Eisenhower's vision of uh, you know, not having a standing army, completely relying on a technology of total destruction as a way of sort of solving this problem. And that rhetorically, I think, at least floats over the way um, people in the business of waging war in the United States talk about things like drones, drone warfare, things like that. But at the same time, you know, from those same people, you're hearing that like kind of the only, welfare state we have increasingly does come from um, investing in weapons of war kind of more and more and more. Um, you know, a quick reading of that you could see um, as a, a break on class warfare, right? But especially when you're thinking about the war, potential war in Ukraine now, um, there does seem to be this void of like, why is this happening? You know, what is driving this forward? And if that, you know, could be filled by an alternate compelling logic. I'd be really interested to hear thoughts about that. Thank you. Um, Hegel's idea of freedom points to a bureaucratic state that is not only free but rational, right? Yes? That you know, freedom and, ration and rationality are intertwined um, in a certain way. And you do a fantastic job in your book and your various you know, orations, you know, showing the incompetence and irrationality of our current bureaucratic state. And I think you do it actually more through a Heideggerian view of these things. You know, freedom is more indeterminate, rationality is more of a problem than it's Hegel. Professor Tews mentioned Kozhev, I heard a bit of Heidegger in this. The problem is, once you're subjecting the bureaucratic state to that critique, it seems to me you also have to do it to the working class. What, what is the rationality in working class aims, right? What is the, uh, why is the idea of freedom in, you know, the demands of the working class, either real or imagined? Where, what's the basis for its coherence? 
Hi. Um, I was wondering what do you guys make of um, the, you know, the COVID kind of responses, um, and what is the like? Do you think that the return of the state to left politics is to be read in the state responses to COVID, and if so, how? And do you see any practical ways in which the kind of you know, the responses of the state to COVID can be, um, uh, you know, facilitated um, to the return of the state for left politics. You're just wanting the last word. I know this game. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> let, let's do it the other way around. You're absolutely right. Um, no, let me let me uh, let me address the 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 COVID point and the war point because um, I know you don't want to talk about COVID. Um, to me, and I, I would link it to the the rationality argument. To me, the COVID crisis is a is a demonstration, if you like, of the extreme fragility of the rationality of governance in the current moment. I don't, as you were saying earlier on, Alex. I find any kind of like simple rationalization of what's happened can profoundly unconvincing. And instead, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very dramatic example of the kind of makeshift ramshackle quality of governance in the current moment. It's utter incoherence, it's inability to listen to its own experts. I mean, the post-factual, the post-truth is not something that inheres in the discourse only of outsiders. I mean, just listen to the way in which the operators of power manipulate uh, the truth. I mean, no less a witness than Jean-Claude Juncker, in, you know, the president of the European Commission, just flat out told a journalist, whenever it gets serious, you have to lie. You know, this, is, this is the governing logic of the management of capitalism at a certain moment. And not sophisticated ideology. This is one of Andreas Malman and uh, Clara Zetkin groups, like, uh, you know, interesting observations that is increasingly we're not relying on sophisticated ideologies. They're just, there's just sort of crude types of denial and incoherence. So I would, I would read, as it were, the, the COVID response in those terms, to that extent not terribly promising, as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a demonstration of a toolkit of possible responses. And that goes back to my point earlier on about central banks. I'm very skeptical of the left Keynesian MMT style reading of central bank autonomy as promising a bright new future because its condition of existence, I think, is actually the disempowerment of class forces. Um, on war, because this point comes back, I mean, the, uh, I think the sheer absence of obvious logics for what's going on in the Ukraine is what suggested to me that it fell in the zone that, that, that Alex and colleagues have diagnosed. My suggestion was one step further back, which was to, as it were, suggest that one of the dynamics which, out of which modern political thinking about perhaps not classes, but certainly masses, has originated is in fact the dynamic of power accumulation by states, as opposed to capital accumulation by capitalists. And the, the, the formations of class that we characterize the mid-century moment, those closed, as you put it, boring moments of social democracy have owe some of their tedium to the fact that they are in fact effects of the official organizations of warfare welfare states in the context of both World War I and World War II. That's precisely what gives them their 
de-radicalized kind of feel because they are really logics in extremists for literally deciding which working class men go to die and which working class jobs are opened up to underpaid female workers in their place, which is, as it were, the logic that they perform. So class is never separate from this, but the push to the limit, I would be saying that there are really two logics of class formation or political formation at work here which run in parallel with each other and are intertwined. <clears throat> um, should we be happy about the state coming back? I, maybe, the, maybe the fact is, is that expecting the state to return was one of the great errors of the period of anti-austerity that followed the global financial crisis. That the expectation that the state was merely absent rather than still present, but that it was pursuing the class interests of the ruling class rather than that of the masses. And part of the reason for that is that we've taken the period of social democracy, the post-war era, as somehow the default of politics rather than a radical exception. And I think that's important to remember. I think that's something that we have to bear in mind. The further we get away from the 20th century, that that period is something that we should forget about. I mean, I, I was joking in the bar the other day that we should forget about everything that happened between 1933 and 1990. <laughs> and someone said, that's too hard of a take. But you should definitely try to say that. So I've said it. And um, Jesus. Um, we shouldn't forget any history, obviously. I'm obviously not suggesting that. But, but the point is, is not to take that as the default and, and some desire to, to return to that. Because also there's no going back. I think the thing about the pandemic is that what it, what it did seem to suggest was a return to state authority, not simply just state activity, that the state was taking responsibility for things, finally, in a way that it previously had washed its hands of. But if we don't expect the state to do good things for us in other areas of life, why should we expect its managing of the pandemic to be broadly in our interests? Why, what, what do we think is institutionalizing our interests and desires in the state that would lead that to happen? I'm pretty skeptical. What's actually happened is that I think there needs to be contestation over the state, not for simply the state to return. And that process will be one generative of the taking of authority. I think we have to take ourselves seriously. And part of the reason why I'm not just one of the, I think similarly to what Adam was saying, one of these who just thinks, well, the state did too much in the pandemic or indeed that it was even some sort of conspiracy and that the state should have done nothing, is that I think that we, there needs to be a taking of responsibility. I think it would have been completely unrealistic and wrong to expect the states not to react to the pandemic. I mean, I think it's a basic state responsibility. But at the same time, I don't think that this can be simply expected to be carried out in the interests of the majority without contestation over it. And so in some sense, I think the onus is on us to say, okay, well, what should have been done? What could, might, what might have been done instead? I think the fact is the state hasn't come back because a lot of the logic of lockdowns, for example, was to give the state time to rebuild its capacity that had worn down over the past decades. And what did it do? It didn't do that. And it said, we'll lift the lockdowns once people are vaccinated. And then that it also broke that very limited social contract that was uh, instituted during the pandemic. So I think what we're left with now, actually, is a form of competing emergency politics of, on the left and the right, which isn't helpful. It's a way of circumventing 
open debate and argumentation in favor of catastrophic demands. And, you know, you have the left-wing version around climate change, and that's going to be the big thing that's coming. And you have right-wing versions which talk about migration, for example. Um, and both of them try to circumvent the or evade the issue of, um, of, of our sort of stasis in this current moment and the responsibility for actually building the organizations necessary, the necessary vehicles for politics, by just inflated rhetorical demands and demands that the state come in and do stuff for us. But we shouldn't expect the state to come in and do stuff for us if we have no leverage on the state. So finally, to, to wrap up, I think there's this question of rationalization, I think, or at least that was mentioned, um, or maybe I'm just going to opportunistically take, uh, take that mention to say what, <laughs> what I want to say, which is that I think the pandemic saw enshrined a form of rationalization which we should think deeply about and think deeply about opposing because that whole conception was based on elevating health as the ultimate aim of life ultimately reducing us to in some sense to bare life we're stuck at home and you must continue being alive right that's the basic aim of politics even at the expense of other public health issues which are very important as well it was COVID at all costs. And I said I wasn't going to talk about COVID, but here I am. Um, but that idea of optimizing life and reducing, trying to rationalize every aspect of life, I think is inimical to any idea of human flourishing, of being able to determine for ourselves what the good is. And I think that's something that we have to go back to and be able to openly debate that and without castigation of others for being irresponsible or for perhaps simply having a different notion of what the good life might be. What an intriguing note to end on. A round of applause for our guests. Well, just in closing, I want to say that uh, to whatever degree you forget what happened in 1930 to 1990 or anything of the last hour and a half, I hope that you will continue to take up and engage in the questions that were raised here tonight um, and the relevant history. Um, and you can do so by um, buying a copy of the book, which is on sale out here, uh, right here. Um, also, follow Bunga on social media. What is the... BungaCast um, and Damage, which you can find by uh, going to damagemag.org and subscribing there. We send a newsletter that's like once a month. It's just articles. Uh, we won't, we won't uh, badger you. Um, and if you'd like to continue the conversation, I think we're going to head around the corner now to uh, the Taylor Public House for some drinks and conversation. Thank you all for coming tonight. Bye. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.